Hello and welcome to a very special edition of The Raw, your Sunderland Echo SAFC podcast. I'm Mark Donnelly and I'm delighted to say we're joined by partner of Fullwell 73 and executive producer of Sunderland Till I Die, Leo Perlman. Thanks for joining us, Leo. No problem at all. Thanks for having me, mate. So obviously, Sunderland Till I Die, season two is coming out days away now. How are you feeling? Is it nervous, excited? No, I think at this point it's excitement to, for everyone to see what we've what we've made and, and, and hear what they have to say about it. No nerves. And what should fans expect from this second season? Obviously the first season went down a hit, the second season a little bit better on the field, but the same kind of stories off the field. Um, I, I don't know, I think that uh, with some football club you're always going to have drama, you're always going to have, uh, have lows and occasionally you can get some highs. Um, and I think this 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 season was no different in that respect. I think it's very different from the first ones, um, mainly because of the, the the ownership of the club changed so dramatically, um, and the attitude of those owners to the club uh, gave us a very different type of story to tell. Um, no less fascinating, just different. So I hope uh, I hope everyone enjoys it um, as much as I was about to say as much as we enjoyed making it, but. That, that, I guess, was uh, was at times it was enjoyable. You touched on the ownership there, and anyone who sees the series or has already seen it will realise that Charlie Methven and Stuart Donald make for excellent TV, excellent viewing. What were they like to work with behind the scenes, in front of the camera and behind the camera? They're absolutely no different off-camera than they are on. And I think most Sunderland fans who saw the way that, uh, saw the way that they... they, they reacted when they came into the club would acknowledge that um you know they are honest they wear their hearts on their sleeve they're open and transparent to a fault uh, no doubt i think they would they would see that as well um they came into the club like fans that's the truth of it they came in like fans uh who had a real motivation to reconnect the club with the city and to get back to a community spirit um, to try and wash away a lot of the, a lot of it that was at the very core of the club and had been for a number of years under Ellis, um, and that's how they came across on camera. I think. I think having watched the series, the one thing that you can say about them is whether what they actually do is is right or wrong. The one thing you can't fault is their passion and their desire to turn the club Indeed. around. Indeed, and I think that that's that's exactly the point I'm making. That you know, it's it, it, it's all well and good to retrospectively look back on mistakes. Or decisions they made and view them as mistakes but every single one of those decisions was made with the best interest of the club at heart and I think that's that makes it quite hard to, to criticise um, and that open, openness and transparency I remember sitting there thinking when they came in when they talked about that openness and transparency and the way they connected with the fans that's all well and good when everything's going well you know that's a huge positive I always thought sat there you know if they don't get promotion this first year let's see how things turn out because it's going to be very, very difficult to maintain that level of openness under more trying circumstances. Um, so, yeah. And it must have been great for you guys, obviously, the access that uh, Charlie and Stuart gave you as well, because you really were, as you were in season one, right at the heart of the club at, at some really pivotal moments in the season, not least, obviously, that January transfer deadline day with, with the Will Griggs yeah. saga. Yeah, and, and that, that encapsulates the, the way that Stuart and Charlie viewed the club I mean you know we'd sold Josh Madger it was clear we needed goals it was clear we needed a striker they made a promise they were going to bring one in 
Um, and I think every fan, with their hearts, they were over the moon that we'd broken the transfer record, that we brought in this big name signing, big name League One signing. Uh, in their heads, everyone sat there and thought, wow, that's a lot of money to spend on Will Grigg. <laughs> um, but if it had turned out to be the right decision and we got promoted off the back of his goals, then they'd be lauded as heroes for making that call. So it's hard to look back on and judge it in that way. And just how open were they in giving you access to the club? Was it a lot different from season one in terms of you getting maybe a little bit more access to, to the owners? Completely different. Chalk and cheese. You know, Ellis was an owner at Absentia. Martin Bain gave us great access to himself, but ultimately he was hamstrung by the owner who sat above him. Uh, Stuart and Charlie were the antithesis of this. They, uh, you know, they opened up the doors and they basically said, you know, come film. Come see what we're trying to do. Come see what we're trying to achieve. Is it difficult when they are such kind of TV gold, for want of a better phrase? Because obviously a lot of the first season, a lot of the positive things from the first season were about the fans and about the city. But you seem to have struck that balance right in the second season between looking at Stuart and Charlie and looking at the, the city and fans as a whole. But is it difficult to make sure you do that when maybe Stuart and Charlie are coming out with some brilliant moments? I don't think you make the decision as you're filming. You make the decision in the edit. You look back at what you've covered and you look back at what the heart of the story is. The heart, of the, No matter how good Stuart and Charlie are on camera, if the story had been about the fans predominantly, then we would have told that story. The fact is, the story of the second season was, in reality, the story of wiping the slate clean from within the club and rebuilding. So naturally, when you get into the edit, that's where the story leads you. You can't tell a story about Sunderland Football Club without focus on the fans. So I'm, I'm over the moon for you to hear you say that you think we got the balance right, because that was definitely something that we that we uh, worked very hard on. What was it like in that edit as Sunderland fans having to watch back, obviously, those two Wembley defeats and some really heartbreaking, difficult moments? Um. My partner, Ben, and the other exec producer, Ben Turner, um, spent an enormous amount of time in the edit on both season one and season two. And um, as he said himself, you know, watching your club relegated 126 times, watching your team, your club, lose in the last kick of the game 126 times in an edit, he said it doesn't get any easier any time you watch it. It just builds and builds and builds. So, um, yeah, tough. And what was Jack Ross like to work with? I guess it might have been an advantage in some ways that, unlike in season one, you weren't having a change in manager midway through the season and you could get used to Jack Ross's way of working and realise what he wasn't and wasn't happy to do. Jack is someone who needs to be in control 100% of the time. But he's, you know, he gets into the granular detail of every decision that's made. And I think having cameras around is, is probably not the easiest thing for someone who likes to have that level of control constantly, uh, that unknown factor, so to speak. Um, so it was a challenge. It was definitely a challenge. Uh, and we worked very hard with him to find a level of comfort and trust so that he understood that we weren't trying to muckrake, we weren't trying to you know, focus on negativity, but actually we were just pointing the cameras at what happened naturally. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting relationship. What sort of restrictions, if any, did the club place on filming? Was it very much the doors are open, come on in, or, or were there certain areas that you yeah. knew were kind of 
hallowed no, ground. They were, they were incredibly open and they had no editorial control over the series whatsoever. Um, so again, it was down to us to, you know, to, to tell the honest, the honesty and find the truth in every story and justify that trust they put in us by doing so. Um, it obviously helps that we're fans. Uh, from, from their perspective, it helps that we're fans. So they believed that, uh, and rightly so, that we would do justice to the story. But equally so, when things were negative or when there were moments that we had to cover that maybe weren't the most positive for the club or for the individuals, we still did so. And I think that also comes across in the series as well. I think that's a good point you make about the editorial control from the club or lack of it, because obviously there's some football documentaries out there at the moment where they are almost promotional products for the club, and this certainly isn't that. I can't understand the ego or the arrogance of, and just speaking completely transparently about this, the ego or arrogance of football clubs um, who would believe that other fans, I mean, let alone other fans, but even their own fans, would be interested in seeing a kind of manicured, manufactured puff piece about how wonderful they are. I just can't get my head around it. Um, there's a lot of content out there in this space and the good stuff stands out a mile because it's truthful and it's honest. Um, the stuff that's less so is, is not, not quite so successful. And how did Stuart and Charlie receive the documentary? Have they seen it yet? Have they given their feedback on yeah. it? Or will they see it when, with yeah. everyone else on April the 1st? No, no, they, they got to see it before. Uh, as a courtesy, you know, they've been honest and, and open and transparent with us and there was a lot of trust involved, so we always said to them that they'll get a chance to see it in advance of it being aired. Um, I don't want them feeling hijacked or ambushed by any scenes. I think it's important that they that they bought into it. Um, so no, they, they both saw it uh, in it in all its in all its glory um, a couple of weeks ago. And what was their feedback on it? Did they enjoy watching themselves back, or was it a difficult watch for them? Listen, the truth is, no one, no one likes seeing themselves on camera, and certainly not seeing themselves on camera for such a lengthy period of time. Because there are always going to be moments that you would rather you had expressed yourself slightly differently, or or put a message across slightly differently. I think that's completely natural. I think it would be incredibly odd to find anyone who watches back, you know, six hours of content that focuses to some degree on them and not find it slightly uncomfortable. I think the most important thing. And I said this to them at the very start of the process, and I said to them again at the end. I, I asked them, do you feel like we captured your character? By the end of watching the entire six hours, did you finish watching and think to yourself, okay, for all the negatives, for all the positives, I feel like it, it, it got pretty close to who I am as a person. Um, and, you know, thankfully, both of them felt that way about the show. Uh, so I think we did our job in that respect. Without obviously giving too much away to people who'll be eagerly waiting for April the 1st, you touched on some really big issues in, in football wider, not just in Sunderland in terms of kind of mental health, financial worries and, and the effects of kind of social media abuse on people as well. How important was it yeah. for you to make sure that you included those areas, which are sadly becoming a really, really big part of the modern game? Well, I think that's the point. You know, the modern game has become about a lot of those issues. And I feel like, I feel like, you know, we didn't dig for those issues. We didn't say, come on, give us a good line about mental health. It's not about that. It's more about the fact that this is really happening. 
it's happening on and if our cameras are there we're going to capture it and we're certainly not going to shy away from those bigger and more difficult topics i think we did the same thing in season one as we did in this one in that respect and it's a you know we have a we have a responsibility i think as as filmmakers as content makers to to shine a light on these issues i think it's really important actually there's plenty of storylines in there. Obviously, the fans will be instantly attracted to the, the transfer tour. Is there a, a favourite storyline or a favourite arc of yours that you think people should look out for? Um, favourite storyline or arc, I'm not sure. I can certainly tell you my favourite episode is the one around the Checker Trade final. Um, you know, I, I still, I still, even thinking about that night at Trafalgar Square, um, both as a fan and a filmmaker, but I guess first and foremost as a fan, I'm sitting at home right now, and, and as most of us, I'm sure are, and um, I've got shivers, like goosebumps, just thinking about that, that sense of coming together, that sense of community, that sense of togetherness, that really only something like football can give us, only that shared experience can give us, and that's that's pretty incredible, to be honest. I think that, you know, again, I don't want to turn this into something about the current crisis we're all going through, but the country is going through, the world is going through, but looking back on that and the God knows how many tens of thousands of people turned up to celebrate that moment in Trafalgar Square makes you quite emotional. Right now, if we're all sat working from home or, you know, socially distancing, whatever the phrase is, um, and it makes you, you know, really yearn to, to get back to that. And I think that's a kind of a message as well that the show can give us all. Um, I think that message of community and togetherness is it, it couldn't it couldn't be more important than it is right now. We can still all connect. We can still all have that shared experience. And if the show does that, even one percent of people, maybe someone's feeling slightly lonely, isolated at home, if the show gives them that sense of connection and gives them a reason to reach out and, and have a conversation or get in touch with friends that maybe they can't actually go and see in person, I'd, I'd be incredibly proud of what we achieve. I know when I was watching the Checker Trade episode, I was feeling a bit emotional because the fans that you've picked yeah. to interview and, and interact with as they were in season one were absolutely brilliant and they really do sum up Sunderland as a football club yeah. and as a city. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And that's, and that, you know, it's, it's funny. You can almost, you can, it's interchangeable. The club and the city, the words are interchangeable. And that's what's so utterly unique about Sunderland as a place. But it all revolves around the club. It's all interrelated, and that that's pretty amazing. I know you said obviously this wasn't and never has been a, a promotional piece for the club. It's never been something to put the club on the market when they've been up for sale. But it must really, really mean a lot to you guys that it resonates with so many people, and ultimately has led to some very high-profile business people recognising Sunderland as a, a fantastic club and an opportunity. Oh, listen, as a, as a byproduct, of course, it makes me unbelievably proud. Um, but no, you're right. It was never the motivation and it, it never could be, nor it should be. Um, but the fact that it ends up on Netflix and there's 145 million global subscribers and you know we have people all over the world who get in touch with us now to say that they've watched the show and they look out for the results or what have you, you know, that, that's, really, that's really special. It really is. Um, yeah, hopefully the second series does that some more. Obviously, yourselves have been linked with a, a takeover of the club. I take it that's not something that's on the agenda at the moment. Um, a little bit busy homeschooling my kids right now. So. <laughs> yeah, 
might have to might have to wait a few months to look back on that one. <laughs> and obviously, we've got to ask the question. I know the cameras haven't been rolling around the stadium of light this season. Are there any plans for no. season three? Never say never. You know, who knows? Um, I, I think that I don't think it felt like a third season at this at this this stage felt right. Um, maybe if there'd been promotion, who knows? Uh, I would love to conclude this with a third series where there was some real positivity. Um, I don't believe there will ever be a Sunderland season where it's all just sweetness and light. There's always going to be worries and there's always going to be downtimes. Uh, but something that ends on a, on a high note would be, would be pretty special. That's great. Thank you for your time, Leo. And thank you for listening to this special edition of the Raw podcast. Sunderland Till I Die Season 2 will be available on Netflix from April the 1st and is, of course, produced by Fullwell73. Thank you once again for listening.